Hello and welcome to your post-referendum outcome squiggly animation podcast. Strap in, folks, it's gonna get pretty cathartic up in here. We also welcome guests Andrew Stanton and Lindsay Collins, the team behind Finding Dory, as well as Alan Barilio and Mark Sondheimer of its accompanying short film Piper. We're back from Annecy, back in the wonderful UK. <laughs> I'm Ben Mitchell. How are you, Steve Henderson? I'm fine, thanks. I'm surprised you're still in the UK. Why don't you fuck <laughs> off back to your own country, Ben? <laughs> you did sort of send me a kind of jokey text about Canada, but I, the conversation's already happened. You know, like, it's like well, because you know, it happens every couple of years anyway, but it's like, yeah, let's take stock of things now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean it. Stay, please stay. We need we need people to stay. Oh, How was your weekend? Man. Well, uh, I'm not a cabinet minister, so it was marginally better than uh, than than some people's. But uh, it wasn't a very good one, was it? Not great. A few of us went to see um, The Conjuring Two last night because I figured it'd be nice to see something less scary than real life at the moment. <laughs> so that was uh, you know actually weirdly animation has a bit of a role to play in that film. Hmm. Do you know much about these films? These No, no, tell us a little bit about them. They're, they're quote-unquote true stories. This one's about the Enfield haunting, which we oh, did a yes. rather good show with Tim Spall yeah. about last year. But the movies are about this husband and wife pair of like, Ghostbusters. And because they're dicks, they collect souvenirs from each of their investigations in this one big ghost room. In the first one, it's like this creepy jack-in-the-box. Uh, in this one, it's a zoetrope. Ah. Like this animation zoetrope is like the um, the catalyst for all the spooky goings on. So the film has you know, some quite creepy sequences involving this zoetrope and the potential that such a charming early form of animation can have in scaring the poo out of us. <laughs> so uh, so I came away from it kind of thinking there's this new type of hybrid genre film that's gone untapped until now. So I'm working on developing some of my own animation centric mm. horror films, you know. The Possessed Peg Bar. I'm quite <laughs> proud of. The Haunted Production Shot. Wow. And of course, yes, there is the real-life horrors of the uh, chilling industry repercussions of decisions made by a frightened 52% of the nation who have actually kicked into gear some real reasons to be afraid, which is rather ironic, considering that probably the reason a lot of them voted was news media fear-mongering, mm. such as the, um, the nature of the press, British press especially. Yeah, it's rare, isn't it, that we uh, that we have a, a a thing to discuss on the podcast, which is national news. But it's rare that we have a thing to discuss that affects absolutely everything, and this includes animation. I suppose the the, uh, the closest we ever got was when we uh, began this podcast years ago, Ben, and we were talking about the animation tax breaks because at that point, the UK was uh, animation industry was very much on its knees, uh, and it had a very kind of uh, grim outlook. But thankfully, uh, thanks to lobbying and thanks to people having their voices heard, things picked up and animation production has picked up. And, you know, there are now thousands of animators uh, in hundreds of companies working in the UK, creating some absolutely wonderful content. And now this has come along and it's like we're back to the start again. Well, I think the, the thing to kind of like think about as far as when these things happen is the immediacy of the outcry. And the reaction, and I think that that can perhaps cloud what will, in truth, actually happen. 
mm-hmm. and when things will actually happen. I think a lot of people perhaps are responding from what I've seen, you know, over social media, which is already a kind of filter of, you know, you're not really getting the full length and breadth of someone's emotional state. Um, <laughs> you're probably getting something a bit reactionary. But it does seem that quite a lot of people don't really know what a referendum is and just how final everything is at this point. Like, a lot of people are reacting like this thing has happened overnight. Yeah. And that, I think, is the currency of fear that the news media kind of thrive on. Of course, if Remain had won, we'd be seeing the exact same level of outcry and news reports saying we're all doomed because that's how they survive. Yeah. The Brexiters would be campaigning for the second referendum and the Leavers would be using the same smug line of, well, hey guys, it's democracy, okay? So get over it. <laughs> you know, it would just be the, the other way around. It would be the exact same shitstorm because we're, we're fucked either way. Every moment of our worthless lives is spent, you know, frog hopping from ephemeral distraction to ephemeral distraction until we all eventually reach the same shared destination of death's cold embrace. <laughs> you can see why I've been kind of quiet over uh, Facebook. You've, and... you've really stored it up, haven't you? <laughs> More usefully, perhaps, yes. than the anger porn most news outlets are throwing at us. Uh, you collated some info on just what defines EU ties with UK animation production, which I think has been rather valuable food for thought for people who have been a little afraid or a little uncertain as to what this all kind of means. I think that's, it's probably a good uh, point to, to state that we have had no news. And in most cases, no news is good news. But there's quite a lot of EU money uh, used to produce some big titles and some little titles as well that you know we've not mentioned on the podcast before. It'd be a shame to see that kind of... Uh, that money go, wouldn't it? Certainly a lot of independents and smaller studios as well absolutely owe their start to a degree of uh, funding from the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain schemes set up, you know, exactly for people like certain friends of ours. Uh, I won't sort of cite specific examples because to the best of my knowledge, it's stuff people have shared on like their personal pages rather than public forums. Yeah. But, you know, we're aware of stuff like Animation Science Frontiers, for example. Things that have really kind of been a good catalyst for small-scale UK animation production that then, of course, leads to increased visibility and helps people find their footing. But also, once people are established, that doesn't rule out further EU funding. It's a very important part of features and, you know, TV specials and TV series. It's interesting that the survey from Creative Europe that you posted up and the grants, the three that received the least amount of funding are the three that I'm aware of. Yes. The yeah, other yeah, three yeah. I'm not entirely sure of, of. Are these like in the more distant future? Yeah, they're TV series, uh, right. the kids' uh, TV series that are coming up. So the three that we, we posted up, um, a couple of them are via Zippy Frames article, but uh, the three that we posted up, uh, Hetty Make Believe, uh, Bradley and B and uh, Toggle Pop are uh, kids' TV series, and they received quite a lot of money. Um, you know, half a million euros for Hetty. Uh, Bradley and B got uh, three hundred fifty-six thousand uh, euros, and uh, Toggle Top got uh, two hundred and fifty-four thousand euros. And then uh, the TV specials, the half-hour specials, were going on a bear hunt. Stickman and Shaun the Sheep, the Farmers Llamas, uh, got uh, below uh, two hundred thousand each. But those are one-offs, so mm-hmm. I guess maybe that has a part to play. Yeah, absolutely. So if they had, been, if those things had been serious, they probably would have gotten yeah. larger amounts. Yeah, they're also uh, quite well-known IP as well. 
you know, yeah. popular children's storybooks and popular characters. So when you go to a place like Cartoon Forum uh, or media and ask for money, it's quite easy to, oh, it's Sean the Sheep, it'll make its money back. There's already foreign uh, television channels lined up ready to take on these shows. So, yeah. Well, the, uh, the Sean the Sheep in particular, like I think I said a couple episodes ago, a crowd of German kids in front of like you know the guy who does show on the sheep they went ape mm-hmm. they adore that and that's you know i think the continued existence of show on the sheep i think the last two seasons of it really hinged on german funding yeah if i'm if i'm not mistaken maybe that wouldn't have carried on maybe we wouldn't have even seen a movie if that you know if it hadn't hit in the way it did sure yeah it was studio canals uh money really that, that was that made uh sean the sheep and studio canals uh money and bfi and other people obviously that are making early man which is the next uh feature to come from Ardman. um if, if we shift slightly from um from tv series and tv specials through to um, animated feature films, we see that uh, 53.5 million uh, ticket sales abroad from uh, UK animated feature films uh, were accumulated between 2010 and 2014. There's a fantastic market for UK uh, feature films, animated feature films, and UK uh, animated television series. So we do like giving our stuff to Europe and Europe do appreciate it. So I I would like to think that that would give Creative Europe and uh, all these other funding bodies and TV channels and distributors the incentive, shall we say, to keep funding UK animation. There's not going to be any more Sean the Sheep if we don't get any more EU funding, if we don't build a relationship with Europe it was when you say no more Sean the Sheep, not even necessarily in the literal sense, the next thing that would be in the shoes of Sean the Sheep, the next thing that has international resonance, the next thing that we can sort of be proud of as a as a British, you know, homegrown IP, mm-hmm. that's also kind of threatened, essentially. The entire future uh, is is kind of at risk. I said well, I wanted to cheer us up there by saying that we've got, you know, some good stuff going abroad, but uh, it always goes back to this, this worry, this kind of... Uh, uh, this problem, but I, I think I'm just saying here that we re- we really need to make our voice heard here. The the UK animation industry needs to put the case forward that uh, you know, we need to need continued funding uh, of uh, from from the EU. Yeah, and one of the presentations at Annecy this year was for a new award ceremony uh, in much the same vein as the Annie Awards for the US, but for Europe. And this is something that Peter Lord and uh, Didier Bruno were at the helm of, and a slight concern was whether or not this would shake that foundation a bit, because this referendum happened after it was announced. Uh, fortunately, all parties concerned seem quite determined to keep it an inclusive thing, keep Britain a part of it. And you can read a little bit more about it on Squiggly. That is a positive to me, in a loose sense, you know, a positive, this sense of solidarity that people have kind of banded together in a way that I've not really seen as regards the outcome of any political vote in Many a year, you know, and I think that maybe for the first time people really kind of appreciate the directness of the impact. Mm. But again, like I was saying before, I mean, there will be changes, but the amount of time it would take for any of this to really go into effect, like there's been a lot of short term effects, the knock the pound took, for example, and that kind of thing. But the longer term stuff will be long enough in the future for us to, I think, be able to work out a backup plan of sorts. And I think that there are ways to carry on having 
positive and strong relationships with international bodies outside of the structure that we're familiar with right now. Yeah. No one really likes, you know, something that they're proud of and a relationship that they're proud of to be threatened or taken away. Even though it is a democratic process, it does feel to the people that lose very unfair and very out of uh, our hands. And I think that, you know, I mean, emotions are good. We're human beings, after all. I think to a lot of us who not only value our international business relationships, but also personal relationships, there is a great deal of sadness and embarrassment and an impulse to reassure those who feel threatened or unwelcome that our own attitudes haven't changed. You mm -hmm. know, and if anything, we intend to be more staunch in our support than before. You know, that's, I think, a, a good human impulse where there's any kind of threat in the air. Well, ho hopefully that is the case. You know, we need to put our differences aside, get ourselves together and say, you know, this is the situation. What are we going to do about it? The more immediate concern that that brings to mind, and again, I'm hoping this is a short-term effect, it's a certain sociological effect that seems to have been set in motion where I think a lot of casually bigoted and xenophobic people have a general day-to-day -day mentality throughout their lives of, well, I know I'm not a bigot. You know, it's just the rest of the world. It's gone way too PC, so I have to bite my tongue. Mm. But on a certain intuitive level, I know that I'm right. And that mentality has been really rather unpleasantly emboldened by a vote for leave. It's somehow validated their nonsense outlook, so they feel it's now okay to be shitty to people with an accent or a different hue to their skin than, you know, the standard Caucasian British skin tones, which, um, if I'm anything to go by, are eerily waxen <laughs> or sunburnt or some kind of blotchy combination of both. You know, and certainly in the past 72 hours, not just on social media, I've heard and I've witnessed a bit of a surge of casual, you know, get gone type comments, mm. you know, a couple of overheard conversations and... To me, it has alarming echoes of some of the social irresponsibility and persecution I've seen firsthand in Quebec. Actually been on the receiving end of, you know, it's another part of the world where a vocal percentage wants to be separate and does not want English-speaking pieces of shit like me, you know, who've been citizens our whole lives, right? Because mm -hmm. it somehow sullies the nobility of their heritage. Uh, and they literally, over there, they have language police. Like, you can get fined if you have, you know, like a shop and the French name on the sign isn't a larger font size than the English name by a certain percentage. Blimey. Uh, there's a real, it's a bullheaded, pedantic attitude about it. And even, for example, established chain stores by law have to be translated into Quebecois to operate in Quebec. So KFC is PFK, Poulet <laughs> Free de Kentucky. Right. Okay. If you go to a KFC... In France, it's still KFC. Right. Because they're not f***ing babies about it. <laughs> like, they can acknowledge another language exists. They can embrace diversity as a step forward rather than a hindrance. Yeah. You know? And I, I, I appreciate that maybe picking the fried chicken peddling conglomerate isn't the most romantic example of cultural diversity at its best. <laughs> but there are others, and there ultimately lies my concern beyond my own industry, that the groundwork might be being laid for a bit of a backwards journey as far as emotional and political maturity. Because mm. I've, I've sort of seen where this can go. And some people are taking it like to the, the extreme and equating it to like wartime persecution. I think that's, you know, those people need to tone it down a bit. But as far as like a relatable kind of analogous situation or a parallel situation, that to me is the where the stem of my own sort of personal anxieties kind of comes from. 
And also just the awareness that, that a lot of people that are very, very close to me are really quite devastated and they will be affected by it in a way that I'm not going to be. I'm, I'm empathetic mm -hmm. and I want to be able to help. It's just that it's so uncertain as to what it is that's going to happen and how it can be helped at this stage. There's a lot of worry out there, isn't there? Yeah. And we've had some uh, people get in touch. People have been quite vocal on uh, Squiggly, uh, letting us know how they feel uh, about what could be the effects of Brexit. On the article itself, a couple of people getting in touch. Uh, as a UK resident alumni of the Animation Sans Frontiers program, this course was and is an amazing educational experience aimed at refining animation production creative thinking and business in the animation industries, financed in part by the EU. It's a sad state of affairs to think that in future, the UK's candidates will not be eligible to apply for the course. My heart goes out to all fellow animation industry vets, recent graduates and hobbyists, caught up in any way with the new UK climate, as I firmly believe we're in a desirable trade that whatever the economic climate will be in demand. Stay strong, passionate and creative people. You've got the ability, talent and skill to overcome whatever the politics of our world throw at us. That's from James Sense. A very good kind of notion there at the end. I think we can all get behind that. Mm -hmm. Alex Smeaton says, as a recent graduate, I had high hopes of working in the industry within the UK and Europe. I was so excited to start uh, getting stuck into, uh, and now I feel deeply unsettled with my future. I'm always trying to look on the bright side and constantly trying to find some sort of positive, but I have no idea uh, what, uh, this will mean for me and my other graduate friends. It could mean a lot of people moving overseas. Another one from uh, Rachel Crook. Fantastic article. I've worked long and hard to get into the industry, and the thought of it not being funded any longer upsets me more than words can say. It's sort of shortened to the point. I imagine that echoes an awful lot of what people are feeling right now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the discussion is just beginning. It's just opening up. I think what we're quite keen on is hearing from more people, people who are starting out, and people who are established and, and their perspectives. Again, I think you and I have both seen, because like the greater percentage of our like sort of social media, Facebook and stuff like that, is people who work in this industry, who have voiced concerns. Some of them are you know more panicky. Some of them are quite grounded and reasonable, and still anxious. But mm. um, they've had some pretty interesting things to say, uh, which again I'm not for the time being. I don't particularly want to read out. They didn't post these thoughts in public forums but you know if there are people who want to get in touch with us and have grievances they want to air or you know ideas or thoughts or just you know questions or concerns that we might be able to assist with in some way or other mm. uh, please by all means do get in touch with us if you go into squiggly there's a contact section of the site of course there's twitter at squiggly and you can send us messages on facebook uh, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine it'd be nice for us to be the forum uh, and discussion point if anyone wants that kind of therapy really if they want to get in touch we're, we're happy to to read out what people are thinking and uh, feeling about the situation the thing that i think kind of like highlights my own naivety was i genuinely didn't think it would go this way mm. and again i think because you know the version of the world that we're exposed to and this gets me in a bit of not trouble but like i think maybe i put my foot in my mouth a bit as far as things I share on Facebook. Of course, to me, Facebook now, because I've so adapted it and filtered it to what I don't want to see and what I do want to see, mm. it's pretty much I log in and I see a stream of people who work in my industry, and uh, a lot of them are quite successful. They're filmmakers that we've met or interviewed on the festival circuit, uh, people we've worked with, people who've employed us, people who've worked for us, 
And it's a wonderful thing to see people doing well and sharing successes and feeling, you know, strongly and passionately about an industry. So then I, you know, will post up stuff about, you know, podcasts that we do, achievements of my own that I feel in the moment happy with and, and proud to share, or achievements of others that I'm, you know, really excited about, stuff that I want to promote via Squiggly. But then, then I kind of forget that the audience who sees that is like people I went to secondary school with <laughs> and like, you know, relatives who don't really understand what cartoons are. Yeah, yeah. So for me, like my version of the world for the last little while has been pretty left-leaning, I would say, pretty liberal, mm -hmm. pretty much in the same, you know, mindset as as I as far as political ideologies and stuff like that. And, you know, the occasionally you get, like, interlopers from other people's friend circles or people who kind of break through the the filter of I don't want to see them on my, my homepage, but they'll comment on things in that respect. And so you're reminded, of course, that it's not this little uh, handcrafted bubble. <laughs> like when um, a when a, a tramp gatecrashes a posh restaurant and starts asking everyone <laughs> for money. How dare you, sir? <laughs> And in that, that respect, I'm seeing a lot more, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of celebration on Facebook now, mm. if, if any at all. I'm seeing the, the handful of people that I know who did vote leave, their attitude is kind of not over the moon, but at a kind of, like, the people I know who voted, thankfully, aren't the people who voted out of, like, let's get the foreigners out of here. They actually had quite practical and quite grounded reasons in terms of the economy and things like that, that weren't reasons that were very publicly sort of distributed mm. by the press. And they're very self-serving, as are my reasons to vote remain, if I'm absolutely honest. Like, it's because of my concerns about my industry and my livelihood and the livelihood of my friends mm -hmm. and what I feel my country's obligations are. So, you know, they're just as reasonable or unreasonable as the other side. But, you know, I do occasionally glimpse the people who voted leave out of being stupid. Yeah. I mean, there's, it, not to be judgmental, there's no other word for it. You see the same Thomas the Tank Engine meme oh, God. of Thomas the Tank Engine being bricked up and, you know, someone will post it up with like a sad face like, this is what they're going to do to the channel. <sighs> they post the exact same meme up on a, a leave page saying, this is what they're going to do to the channel. Happy face. Yeah. Party popper emoticon. It's it's such a, a horrible thing to see that one of my favourite episodes of Thomas the Tank has been used as, <laughs> as, as, as propaganda, genuinely. <laughs> What's well, sort of not amusing, but like, you know, wryly ironic, I suppose, the people who voted leave not quite realising the repercussions, and they're kind of like backtracking a bit. Like, uh-oh. Okay, I didn't actually think that this was going to have this immediate effect in terms of... <laughs> I just, I just, I just, sorry, I was just thinking about that episode of Thomas the Tank. You've seen it, haven't you? It's, it's, it's I always, remember so, it. Mainly. So I, I, I believe it's Henry. He's got a brand new coat of paint. And so he goes, oh, I'm not leaving. It's raining. I'm going to stay in this tunnel where it's safe and there's going to be no consequences. <laughs> and what happens is that the tunnel, you know, he closes himself into the tunnel. And the message in that episode is, <laughs> oh my, rather poignant. Yeah, rather poignant indeed. I was watching um, the new season of Orange Is the New Black the last week or so. There's a wonderful scene in that. It's not really a spoilery scene if people watch it, but uh, one of the prison inmates who's quite hateable uh, is trying to get in with the guards, and so is sort of appointed to form a kind of group of snitches, I guess, to weed out the gang activity in the prison. Uh, and all the people that she corrals are white girls like her. 
And she inadvertently ends up forming this, like, white power rally gang. <laughs> and there's this moment, like, you know, where they all start, like, charging, white lives matter, white lives And this look on their face, like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> that seems sort of curiously analogous as well. I think it was because I watched that episode on the day. Yeah. People were kind of, like, expressing their remorse. <laughs> The world's upside down, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> I mean, like, I would have thought that the day that David Cameron resigned, I would be <laughs> over the f-ing moon. I would be dancing in the street. I'd be high-fiving people. I'd be kissing strangers. I'd be, like, clicking my heel. It'd be like singing in the rain. I'd be swinging round off lampposts. But no. Well, the- He found a way <laughs> to, to not even give us that satisfaction. Yes! Yeah, he's taken everything from us, including the satisfaction. In, in a, amazing, like <laughs> consistency of disappointment and shittiness. Yeah. Well, he's he's off somewhere. I'm sure, relaxing. Panama, probably, with a nice pig under his arm. Anyway, did you have fun at Odyssey? <laughs> <Hennessy? laughs> I did. I really did. Before we were all so happy two weeks ago. It was. <laughs> we were in such a great place. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Uh, and, and, and now to think that, you know, how many forms are we going to have to fill in to go, honestly, Ben? <laughs> oh, that's, that's probably not the case. But yeah, I, I had a great time in Annecy. And um, I went uh, 50-50 for Squiggly and for the Manchester Animation Festival. And we went to a thing called uh, Meet the Festival Programmers. It, it, was, it was rather telling about the state of UK short film. Because, of course, we've been talking about Brexit there, Ben. And we've been talking about feature film and TV production. But uh, no one is looking after animated short films. It was rather, it was rather embarrassing sitting there uh, as part of this uh, forum. It was meet the festival producers. We all had a table. It was like the UN for animation festivals. We were all there, and then um, agencies and commissions and institutes would come in, and they would swap uh, tables every five minutes, ten minutes, and promote their wares. So they would say, "Hello, I am from German Films. Here's a DVD full of uh, animated short films made in Germany." Please show them at your festival. Hello, I'm from Portuguese films. Here's a DVD full of Portuguese films. Hello, I'm from French-speaking Belgian films. Here's a list of French-speaking Belgian films. And I'm thinking, where's the UK version of this? Yeah. Where, where is the UK version of this? Where's the person sitting down, going around animation festivals, promoting UK animated short films? And it made me think a little bit more about what are we kind of known for? What happens to all our talent? Uh, and why we don't have an awful lot of animated short films being promoted uh, as as well as as other uh, films internationally. I mean, we saw at Annecy this year, there was only one UK animated short film in the uh, short films in competition, which is quite telling, because if we looked at commissioned films, there was loads, and we did incredibly well there, Moth Collective uh, scooping an award. Um, and, the gra- and, and it's usually the graduation films that we can rely on as well. And so these people, these talented filmmakers will make a superb graduation short film at the RCA or the NFTS or any other uh, university. And then they'll gradually disappear into obscurity. And I'm pretty certain it's because they're not being promoted afterwards. Well, I would say you're absolutely right. The distribution avenues just simply aren't there for British made films. And it's something that I've experienced firsthand. And this is something that is another concern for me. 100% of revenue I've been able to get from my independent film work has been from the EU. Mm. 100%. Studio Canal, WDR, it's all been international sales. 
there hasn't been any forum available within the UK for that kind of independent film work. So that's another concern of like, well, what's going to happen now as far as that goes? Because mm. that's a, my, my model, I think, for making money from short films, which very few people tend to consider, because I think a lot of people are kind of debating like, well, how do I make money from my film? I'll put it on Vimeo on demand. Well, if you're not Don Hertzfeld, then that's not going to make a great deal of money. Yeah. Even people that I would consider to be pretty well-established within England, you know, struggle a little bit. Well, we know people who, they say, are puffed and nominated and, and, and people that have put their film online. And, and we ask them, because we made a huge fuss about it. We love the film. Uh, and we said, how much, you know, how much have you made? Let us know. And they've made like 100 quid. Yeah. Which, you know, is it's not a living. No. Really? I kind of, I think rather sort of fortuitously, when I first realized that one of my films had marketability to it, it just sort of picked up some momentum at uh, a bunch of major festivals in 2010. And it was, I was just reading Bill Plimpton's autobiography. It's one of the first things I ever did for Squiggly, actually, was a review of that book. And he goes through his model of film distribution as a self-made man. And he goes through it in more detail in the subsequent book he wrote, which is called Make Tunes That Sell Without Selling Out. Mm-hmm. And it's a good model. It's You have to consider how you approach the making of the film as well, as far as what he has deduced sells. He has a very sort of specific set of parameters for how he approaches the films he makes. That for the most part, you know, more coincidentally than anything, my films have all kind of been within. So I did find that I was able to sell films to various distributors and television stations and touring programs because they all, you know, they're on the lookout for stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it is an effective model. And as a consequence, while I wasn't able to get any real funding to make the films, they were all made during downtime between work. So I was using the work, the money I had made from commercial projects and television series and things like that to essentially fund my own films. Although really it was just so I wouldn't need a job for a couple of months while I made this film. But then ultimately you get it sold to a couple of TV stations. You've made the money back that you would have made had you been working in that time. Mm-hmm. So it's like an investment more than anything else. If you can't rely on funds to get it made initially without the EU, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, and I do think that there is a big gap. Maybe in a way, I mean, it's not ideal, but maybe that sort of absence that might kick into gear some kind of UK incentive for UK produced films, a way of getting them out there, a way of motivated festival distribution. Well, uh, hopefully, I know the BFI and uh, Arts Council England made a series of promises to, um, you know, the Animation Alliance. We put the, the link to that article on the uh, Brexit article. Uh, but yeah, I would like to see that, Ben. I would really much like to see that being pushed as well because we're in no means safe. It's not like we're having, with the EU funding disappearing, it's not like we're having something taken away from us. We're having something that we're very, that's very fragile that we're, we're still building on, uh, you know, taking up. And we really need these short films distributing as well. well. This is like a big shopping list for us, isn't it? We're just whinging about animation now. It's a perfect opportunity, this Brexit, to say what we need to do. It's pretty alarming going to a place like Annecy and seeing such fantastic representation of all these countries not just at this meet the programmers um event but at the parties and bumping into people and talking to people who are representing bunches of films made uh, in in countries and 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 yet we see the individual uk filmmakers representing themselves mm. paying for it out of their own pocket you know going bankrupt going around festivals you know putting it on the credit card it's not on is it no 
sort of eerie cosmic timing as you were saying that uh, Chris Bowles just got in touch with us over Twitter. Can we expect the UK government to step up and invest in the industry in the same way as the EU? <laughs> no, I'm getting my CV ready for fruit picker. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's a concern that's on people's minds as we speak. Mm -hmm. And he's not even listening in. Uh, I think that it's certainly something that I agree is a, is a hopeful consequence of, if not a consequence, so, you know, something that can actually be put into motion. Because mm. I'm making a new film as well. And uh, it's delightful, and I'd love people to see it. But it would be a pain if, you know, I have to f***ing do all the distribution myself again. Yeah. It, I'm a busy man now. <laughs> I'm thinking of getting a dog. Yeah. Gathering firewood and <laughs> making big sticks to, to fend off marauders. <laughs> Bedminster will be the first to f***ing descend into Mad Max chaos. <laughs> I have no doubt of that. Yeah, I've been to the Asda there. It's already halfway there. <laughs> anyway, so you asked me about Annecy, didn't you, Ben? <laughs> we did quite a bit of reportage from Annecy while we were there, and there's some ongoing coverage that I think will probably be wrapped up within the next few days. But uh, it's been a big source of, you know, industry goings on. And I think were it not for this, I certainly was, and to an extent still am, feeling quite excited about the industry and stuff that's happening and, you know, new developments and things that are going on. I think the short films were refreshingly a positive experience. Yes. Uh, the films in competition, they, there was less of a sense, I think, of trying to impress with Emperor's New Clothes artistic value. Even the one I saw, because I saved all my screenings till the last day, um, one of them was the avant-garde off-limit screening, which at the time I, I walked away from thinking, well, I kind of knew that was going to be artsy-fartsy. But then I kept sort of returning back to it in my head, and there were only one or two that I actually disliked. Mm. It was actually a, a pretty strong screening. It just it really stretches how they define animation. So it almost felt like you were at a screening from a different kind of festival in a way. Yeah. That's Marcel's prerogative, in a sense. Some interesting stuff happening. Mm. And certainly, you know, the special events and the special presentations. Of course, we've got Chuck Steele happening. They did a talk there. The stuff that Google ATAP are doing with people, you know, internationally. New TV projects, new international films. The feature film selection was much stronger this year than I, it's been since I've ever gone to Annecy, mm -hmm. I'd say. So it's a good time to be an animator, in a sense. Yeah, and not, nothing's been taken away yet, you know, yeah. so we've still got that to cling on to. Is there anything, because we did a, a, a little live broadcast, our first little experiment in that arena, mm -hmm. uh, which went rather well, I thought. Got some engagement from the, the Facebook community. you got to like us on Facebook to be privy to these things. So just another reminder, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. And make sure you tick that little follow box, because uh, I think that's something that we'd like to do a bit more of in the future. Yeah, and if if you are on Facebook, I would encourage people to visit it, ev the actual page every day because Facebook does like to hide <laughs> our articles. Yeah. Uh, so it's worth popping in and add it to your favourites bar and have a little look every day, see what we've got, because uh, it's a quick way to, to find out uh, what's going on on Squiggly. Or, well, apart from squiggly.com. <laughs> well, we'll get there which eventually. Which they could go to as well. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of cuts out the old middleman, but... <laughs> There are certain Facebook exclusive things like joining in on certain conversations or these live videos, that kind of thing. Mm. That's something that we'll, we'll be amping up a bit. But that was good. I think we kind of went through some of the highlights up to the Friday. Were there any sort of like final highlights for you from Annecy? Well, finding Dory was an interesting experience. Yeah, it was really nice. It was uh, got its premiere at Annecy. 
mm. and uh, is released in the UK uh, next month. It's already out in the US. It is, I believe, breaking box office records. Although, kind of feels like all of them break box office records. It's a very fragile box office, isn't it? Isn't it just like down to inflation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Snow White only made £36,000. <laughs> the uh, hugely anticipated, of course, I think Finding Nemo was one of the most beloved Pixar films ever made. It also hit at the time when DVD was coming out as well. Uh was really kind of finding its stride. Ah. And so it became one of the most uh, successful DVDs uh, of all time as well, Finding Nemo. Oh, there you go. Well, there we go. So the sequel is about Dory. I kind of feel like they should have called it, I should have left Nemo where he found him. Because <laughs> Nemo's a little smart-ass in this one. He's such a like emotional guilt-tripper with this poor beleaguered dad, you know. All he wants to do, you know, he's already a bag of nerves. He's already, like, home alone once. <laughs> and so now it's, you know, the moment the dad kind of, like, loses his rag with Dory, who's must be unbearable to live with. Mm-hmm. Like, she is mentally ill. I mean, <laughs> I, I have compassion, but that must be a drain. You know, you can't get a night's sleep. She's always fucking interrupting and waking you up. Oh, my God, I just remembered something. It's 2 a.m. That's one way to describe the beginning of the film. Uh, well, of course, it did the the Monsters View opening prequel thing of like, look how cute she was when she was a baby fish. Yeah, big fish eyes and everything. There's a lot of comparison, isn't there, with with Monsters View? I th- I feel for this particular film, it is a it is entire, about a third of the film is done in flashback. Adorable flashback, no less. Mm. I enjoyed watching it. You know, I wouldn't discourage anyone from going to see it because it's a Pixar film. It hits all the right usual notes. If you liked the first one, I don't think this will automatically leave you cold. I'm sure there'll be a lot of stuff in it for people to engage with and at least be sort of reminded of. Uh, I thought certain elements of it were very, very good. I really enjoyed the guys from The Wire as the sea lions. The uh, It was a bit of a waste of Caitlin Olsen, I would say, because she's one of my favourite people in the world. I'm not entirely sure what they could have done with her. She could have had her run in a bar with her some... (laughs) <laughs> threatening to beat people's teeth in that kind of thing <laughs> so the cast the casting was good the humor was pretty on point uh there's a wonderful sequence in it i won't give away what's going on but it involves a certain very popular one might say overused louis armstrong song mm. except used very well and it's a very funny sequence mm. that it, it felt kind of not like something you'd see in a pixar movie like it felt sort of unexpected well, the whole bit leading up to that point as well was very far removed, even from the kind of the kind of adventure you may expect. Having seen Finding Nemo, the action sequence leading up to that was very far fetched, but you went along with it because it was weirdly perfectly placed. It all kind of it worked in the moment mm. rather well, but I think that there are there were certain structural issues I had with it. Yeah, here's the thing, and I think that there's a certain element of this that works quite well in most films and is certainly used as a bit of a crutch in like family animated feature films of the the element of conflict and the element and and how that is incorporated into the story a character is on a journey but you can't just go from a to b so for example in finding nemo he needs to find little nemo so you know his journey for the most part of the film is very a to b and then right at the end He's just about to get there. So, spoiler alert, put your fingers in your ears if you haven't seen this film in 13 years. Nemo then escapes, and so they, they miss each other. Mm-hmm. So then there's this other element of, like, this new leg of the journey. 
that he has to embark on. This film kind of took that idea to this complete extreme, where basically it's like a film version of that like riddle of like, you've got to get the fox and the chicken to the other side <laughs> of the river, but you can't do it in one go. You've got to go over and then you've got to come back and then you've got to leave this here and you've got to grab this. And then like, it was every like leg of the journey was met with some element of conflict or other. Mm-hmm. Um, like every corner they turned, there was an obstacle. Whereas in Finding Nemo, you could turn some corners before the obstacle would be there. Mm. You know, this, it really kind of seemed like, you know, every destination they got to was just the wrong destination. And that actually gets a little bit frustrating. I find as a, as a viewer, like it sort of, it seemed kind of unnecessary in the sense that it, it seemed like, did they feel they needed to do that to fabricate a sense of drama? Maybe they felt that, you know, the story wasn't engrossing enough on its own. I, th- I, I think I, I, I'm going to have to agree with you on this point is because uh, I was watching the film and the more that that happened, the more that uh, there was the twist and the turn and the, you know, the peril disappeared. Yeah. It, it was non-existent. So when, uh, in, in Finding Nemo, when they jumped out of the fish tank in the um, uh, dentist's uh, office and went down the drain, that was a leap into the unknown. Whereas they jumped out of fish tanks and into other things so many times in this particular film, there was no kind of peril there. I mean, it was adventurous. You didn't know where they were going to go. It was exciting. It was, But we kind of knew that they were diving into a safe place. But you know, I, it's, a, it's a quibble that I kind of realized more in retrospect. I did find actually, you know, that there were some bits that may have played a little like, you know, more powerfully. I think some of the stuff with the dolphin who has that echolocation mm-hmm. and they use that as like a sight gag and a lot of it. There were some pretty funny gags in that, but the way it was used was always in this kind of like frantic, frenetic, overplayed peril way. Okay. And maybe if they hadn't done it in that way, the the humor of it would have played a little freer and looser. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's easy to criticize. This is the thing with Pixar, of course. They did that wonderful speech in uh, Ratatouille about what pieces of shit critics are. <laughs> Was it Peter, what's his face? Uh, it's Peter O'Toole, yeah. It's uh, Anton Ego. What a great head off at the pass. Like, <laughs> just try and give this film a bad review <laughs> kind of thing. So, you know, it's uh, they've safeguarded themselves, I'm sure, from from any criticisms. And, you know, it's doing spectacularly well. There's an awful lot of stuff to acknowledge as being absolutely brilliant in the film uh, from a technical point of view, if nothing else. And there is plenty of other stuff, but, you know, the the octopus, for example, the camouflage, yeah, that was great. That was a great idea. Yeah, a couple of episodes ago, I, or the last episode, I know we've done so many live podcasts and did one in Annecy, but I, I've kind of lost track. But um, an episode or two ago, uh, I questioned whether or not Pixar were still advancing uh, what could be done in in CG, and I think that was the answer to the question: uh, is that uh, Hank, the the octopus in uh, in Finding Dory, is an absolute delight to watch. It's it's such a kind of well animated. I mean, it must be so you know how difficult it is to animate like a dog with four legs. You know, this guy's got seven, um, yeah. and you know the the way that he kind of blends into the background and the way that that has to be not only animated but you know, the layout has to be uh, spot on and the, you know, it has to be storyboarded right. And it, first of all, it has to be scripted. So there's a lot of effort and a lot of kind of um, involvement in those scenes. And there's some really nice gags where he's uh, becoming uh, invisible, acting as, as you know, as a pot plant and, you know, as a railing. And 
and it's it's just uh, an absolute treat to see. You know, I remember the uh, when the Inside Out, I think it was Inside Out, the art of book came out, mm. and you were a little uh, nonplussed with how it was sort of put together. It seemed a bit lazy. I had a little skim of the Finding Dory art of book yesterday in a bookshop because I wanted to show uh, Laura some examples of this. Mm-hmm. Because I figure, well, they're going to chronicle the, the the technical labor and that kind of thing in the art of book, surely. And maybe I, I, it was a skim, so maybe I missed it. Maybe, I don't know if you've got the book. It really did seem like they didn't go into that at all. I've just got the book here. I saw like stuff about the octopus, but it was just like some character sketches of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a few character sketches, very nice character sketches here. And then there's sculpts. And it's the same with all the characters. Uh, all the characters get a kind of uh, a look in. But they they don't really go into the technical side of things, do they? In these in these art of books, and it would have been really nice to see that to see that. I would have been sure that they would have at least come up with some concept pieces to demonstrate, you know, how that effect would work. Yeah, when you, I'm sure that that a lot of forethought had to go into it. So I was a little surprised because that was the only reason I picked up the book was like, oh, you got to see what they did with the octopus in this film, mm. and there's nothing in there to, to show about it. So. Were any other good points to finding uh, Dory, Ben, that you particularly loved besides Hank? Uh, I rather enjoyed... um... Well, like I say, I thought the the sea lions were funny. I liked the little coder at the end of the film. I quite enjoyed the, the Sigourney Weaver... (laughs) <laughs> that's that was quite that's very good yeah yeah i wonder if she she seems sort of doomed to just constantly play voiceover characters in films now hmm. like the last few things i've seen her in like paul and cabin in the woods and this the ratio of her just being like this unseen voice to her actually being on screen i don't know maybe it's just the, the coincidence was she voicing wally oh maybe that that rings a bell she yeah. was wasn't she so yeah all in all good effort i mean as far as sequels go you know, they did a pretty good job. It's, it's a very hard thing to retread certain ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ellen does a good job playing a fish. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I believe, is it Mr. Stanton? It is uh, Mr. Stanton. We will be uh, hearing from. Yeah, we've, we've got an interview with uh, Andrew Stanton and uh, producer Lindsay Collins. Tremendous. They were in Annecy with the premiere of the film. So the film is, of course, out in the States and will be out shortly in the UK. But let's tease you all a little bit, for those of you who haven't seen it, with some insight from the director and producer team themselves. I am Andrew Stanton, the director of Finding Dory. And I'm Lindsay Collins, the producer of Finding Dory. Excellent. Um, so, Dory's back, and She's so is everyone back. else. Yes. She's back. She's back. Some, not everybody, not everybody's back, but some people are yeah. back. One of the things that struck me about, about Dory coming back was the way that it fits so well into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know story is such a big thing at Pixar. But uh, certain things like being able to speak whale yeah. and, and other elements yeah. have been described. And yeah. is there an element to when you began writing the story for, for Dory, was there an amount of backpedaling in the writing? Did you think of that through? Yeah. we. Um, I always knew from the first movie, just as the writer of the original, that that she had wandered the ocean alone as a kid uh, and had no idea where she was from and that she had this sense of abandonment that she couldn't apply to anything and that she assumed that the reason she was alone in the ocean was because it must be her short-term memory loss. So there was like this sort of um, negative view she had of her of her, her handicap. And, and so... That was all. That was why she was overly optimistic and why she was overly friendly. It was her armor. It was a way to maybe like in, increase the odds that when you met her, you wouldn't ditch her. 
and that was always part of the design. I just emphasized the comedic side of it in the first movie. So I came with that, and then we started there and go, okay, where is she from, though? And when we went through just the few clues we had put in for re- different reasons on the yeah. first one, uh, she could... Uh, she could read. Yeah. And, and she could speak whale, and so that... And she, she said weird says, human things all yeah. the time. Like, like the sea monkey has my money. money and, you know, and like stuff like blue. that. It just felt like it, it just kind of, it, it kind of implied that she had grown up around people. She had been exposed to humanity, and so it suddenly it just said, oh, an exhibit. That would make complete sense. She'd see every walk of life all day. And there was, yeah, I mean, I think there was also, because she's got short-term memory loss, and because so much of that is there for a mystery, and that was the focus of the film... Um, was, uh, you know, any clue we had was kind of nice. I mean, it was, you know, what do we, what do we know about Dory? And it was kind of the discovery of, of where she was from and, and what felt right. I mean, there was a lot of feeling around in the dark, frankly, in terms of, of, of experimenting with different scenarios of where she could have come from. And it, I don't know how else to say it, except that when it was wrong, it felt wrong. Yeah. Um, and when it was right, you were like, yeah, that, that feels right. That yeah. feels like who, why she is who she is. You know, every time we try something, it kind yeah. of would feel right yeah. when we got it right. <laughs> were you approaching the characters as, as still as your characters? Or after 13 years, they're very much a part of the yeah. public uh, consciousness? It's kind of shocking when that happens. Right? I'm kind of glad I didn't think like that, or I probably would have frozen in my tracks and not had the bravery to do whatever we needed to do, which I did with the first one before anybody knew who they were. So I felt like the second movie needed the same respect and the same um, deep investigation. You had to have complete uh, courage and, and, and be fearless about just going, we got, we're going to do whatever we need to do to make this the, the right story for her. But I also, th- yeah, and I think that um, it, it, is also, it's, it is also true that when, I mean, and, and we're, you're hearing it now, it's the two of it, because when you talk about it after the fact, mm-hmm. you always kind of, we're always kind of in interviews like surprising each other. I was like, oh yeah, that is true. I mean, you kind of, it's like talking about your kids kind of in a, in a yeah. kind of objective forum and, and you spend so much time kind of living with them day to day that you don't, you forget kind of, you, you don't have an object, objective kind of sense of them for yeah. a long period of time. And I think, you know, 13 years is a long time to have some ob- like objectivity yeah. or, or at least some appreciation for kind of what they are that you didn't necessarily realize when you were living with them daily. So I think that certainly informed us, yeah. I mean, I, you yeah. know, that like, you're like, oh, I, I see her kind of a little bit differently than I would have maybe at the end of Nemo, mm-hmm. you know. With the, with the new film, there's also new characters. Oh, yeah, ones. good ones. One that uh, struck me, uh, which I like particularly, was, was Hank. Yeah, yeah he's it's good. It's difficult not to like him from a character point of view yeah. and also from, a, from an animation point of view. Yeah. something quite special. I mean, octopuses are amazing in real life. They just happen to be kind of icky and can kind of freak some people out. So the only thing we had to do was make sure that he was as appealing as you could make an octopus look so that it was it's like a friendly octopus. But... Um, Making a move exactly like a real octopus is, we we wanted to try to capture it because that's fascinating. That was he's probably he broke, the, most, yeah. the difficult, most difficult character we ever did. He broke the mold him. for sure yeah. at Pixar. I mean, I, and and I think you can see it on the screen. Like it, he he's different, um, and he's incredibly complicated as a from an animation standpoint. And it's and I think so much of it is kind of like you know Wally in a weird way, and, and that you know you don't see his mouth. It puts a lot of pressure on the performance. Um, you see it sometimes, but very rarely. I mean, because it's kind of placed in a weird way, and so so much of the expression and his emotion and his performance is in kind of the eyes. I mean, it's very, 
subtle, you know, it kind of demands a subtlety. I mean, he can move really cool and not subtle at all, but in the moments where he's actually acting, like giving a performance, it's very subtle with the animation, yeah. which I think is really cool. Yeah. So the, the, the first film uh, was uh, perhaps a love letter to the coral reefs of Australia. Yeah. yeah. And this one seems to be a bit close to home. Yeah, yeah. it's because the one area that we wanted to feature just because we thought it was so arresting in the first movie was the kelp forest, but we couldn't justify it because it only exists on the California coastline. It doesn't exist in Australia, so we just couldn't do it. And frankly, technically, now that we've tackled it, I probably probably wouldn't have been able to achieve it anyway because of how much is moving and swaying. Um, but that's where we chose because it was the one thing that was sort of left on the table from the first movie. And we started there because we could start anywhere. Where's the story from? And I love the idea of the movie being more of a fairy tale and it's more of a forest and that you get lost in the forest, that there's secrets in the forest, um, there's things to be afraid of in the forest. And the first movie was more about crossing the desert in a weird way, like a big open water. So we just kept getting riches for staying there. Once we knew it was the California coastline, they, it, it helped us pick all our creatures that you know are, are local to there and uh, come up with the institute. It, it really just kept giving us riches. You told us that you um, began the story uh, when you saw uh, Finding Nemo after yeah. however many years it was, yes. and you became worried about Dory's yes. situation. Yeah. I suppose with that in mind, there's not going to be a Finding Marlin. You know, you're the first one to suggest Finding Marlin. Everybody's been suggesting Finding Hank. Yeah. Because of his missing tentacle, I think. And because I think they like him as a character. But both are valid. You know, you never know. <laughs> Albert Brooks like said something in some interview we had in LA. He's like, I think Marlin's in love with Dory. I've always <laughs> seen it as a love story. We all of us were like, wait, what? what? Like, I mean, and even, you know, but I think, I don't think, I think it feels of a piece. I mean, I, I do feel like anything that was left, I feel good about those characters and where they are yeah. at the end of this film. Like, I, I, th I like who they are together and kind of who they are individually. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the cast. Um, yeah, good cast. mentioned uh, Albert Brooks there. And, uh, yeah, Ed O'Neill's Hank, Ty Burrell is uh, the Beluga Whale Bailey, uh, Kate Olsen. Olsen is Destiny, and then you got Dory's parents, which are Diane Keaton and Eugene Levy. Yeah. And then we've got uh, a little wire reunion on the rocks with right. the sea lions. And wire reunion on the rocks, Dom, like a drink. Yeah, Dominic West and Idris Elba. <laughs> I'll take a wire reunion and, on uh, the rocks, a little bit of salt. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was like a dream cast. And, we, and the nice thing, when you make a movie called Finding Dory, all the agents return your phone calls, so we got all yeah. our first choices. Yeah, it was so, a great yeah. cast. Yeah. Um, and, and incredibly lovely, just human beings. Um, we lucked out in that way too. Like great. They were great. I, I have a feeling that uh, Ellen's been waiting for this film quite a while as well. That's, uh, Something tells you, yeah, <laughs> that she might have been waiting for it. Only every show she's ever done. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, I mean, honestly, like, it's that was the first phone call, really. Hmm. Once. Yeah, we the, had to make sure she, she was on board and Albert were on board, and we weren't going to do it. The good news is we had a lot of television like evidence to suggest that she would be on board. Yeah. <laughs> so after um, 13 years, uh, the much anticipated films about, do you, are you concerned at Pixar about success, about how this will be received? I think, I mean, I can't speak for everybody at the studio, but I know for me, all I care about is that it does well enough that we get the opportunity to do it again, you know, whatever that is. We have these weird, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a process when these films are being made because you're spending so much time kind of looking down, right? I mean, with everybody who's making the film with you. And 
I think for us, you know, we have a big party always at the end of our film, and then we screen it for the crew um, and, and their families. Um, and it's like nobody's seen it, and it's the first time anybody sees it. We do it before anybody else sees it. And I think for us, like, that's always the one that we hold our breath because the people in that room have given up, you know, a lot of lives, a lot of their lives um, to make these movies and a lot of um, time and, and energy and and... And it matters to us that they're proud of it. And I think kind of after that is always, that's there's just a sigh of relief because it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's certainly, that's the one for me that I'm holding my breath that whole screening because it, it's, the, it's the audience that, yeah. you know, gave up a lot of their time and effort and soul to put it on the screen. So Excellent. that's we care. Thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. Oh, thank oh, you. Thank Squiggly, you. it's a good name. Thank you to Andrew Stanton and Lindsay Collins, the director and producer, respectively, of Finding Dory out in the UK in July. Uh, keep your eyes open for that. Of course, you won't be able to miss it, I'm sure, when the, when the time comes. Now, uh, preceding Finding Dory, as is tradition over in the Disney Pixar camp, there is a uh, short film. As is tradition. It's also rather splendid. Mm-hmm. Piper, a story of a, a charming little sandpiper uh, who... Uh... Not a mouthy prison inmate. <laughs> who gets what she deserves in the kitchen <laughs> oh god spoiling it again i've got i've yet to get round to it back to the pixar film right uh this was great this got a probably one of the biggest laughs of the whole festival this is wonderful jump cut gag <laughs> some of the technical brilliance of the film it's more photo real than quite a lot of the short films that they do yeah and what a relief after lava <laughs> That they're back on form, you know? Yeah. Because that one really did put a sour taste in my mouth, as we documented at the time. I think we both had a bit of a vent about that. You worry, of course, because Pixar and Disney, they do authentic sentiment rather well. So it's quite jarring when they cross over into, like, false maudlin sentiment. This was much more, you know, to me, it felt much more in the spirit of what they do best. I think in two aspects you can imagine that they're going to go and do the kind of uh, false maudlin sentiment, as you just said, but then you end up uh, being absolutely delighted because it's got a great balance of, of humour and, uh, you know, all the right gags in the right places and all the right sentiment uh, to, to help uh, project the story. But I think also visually when you look at this film, you might look at it and feel, uh, that doesn't look like a thing for me. And, and I would be guilty to say that I would look at it and go, well, it's a film about a little bird. It's very hyper realistic. What do you, you know? What have you got to show us if once I've seen this image? But there's an awful lot to the actual animation. Yeah. The uh, anthropomorphism has been, it is put through the uh, character animation so beautifully in this short uh, that it really does stand out. It is some. It's you're not watching an Attenborough <laughs> documentary. Yeah. You're watching a real piece of animation. Uh, which is, although it may, be, may look hyper-realistic, um, it is very much animated. And certainly, um, the way it ends is fairly neat. Like, there's no sort of, like, big payoff gag or big payoff sort of emotional reward. It's just an ending. There's a little sort mm. of brief glimpse into this world uh, that doesn't go for, like, tugging at heartstrings or really having people roll around in the aisles. It just kind of, it's in and out. It does what it does, and it has, like you say, you know, some really great little sight gags in it, some great little behaviors, 
It's a lot of fun. It's, it's interesting that a lot of the animation that we saw in Annecy involved the relationship of beaches and water in interesting ways. Mm. Sequences in The Red Turtle, for example, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at great length when the time comes. And uh, some stuff that, again, we can't really go into, I don't think, quite yet, but uh, stuff in Moana, dealing with water and beaches, that's uh, sort of unexpected. So beaches and water and how that works in animations is kind of interesting theme that kept sort of rearing its head. Odd when stuff kind of happens at the same time like that. Maybe it's because we can finally do wet sand in animation, in CG animation. It's kind of like how when fur started happening, then yeah. all these, everything became furry. The, quick, they got the beach plug in, quick! <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, best, the poor guy when he was talking about it, what was the director's name again? Uh, it was uh, Alan, Alan uh, Barilio. When he was talking about, um, you know, the technical elements and stuff like that, one of the, the recurring visual motifs in the Piper is little sand... Are they sand crabs or clams? Little clams. Clams, yeah. And they're making these little like air pockets that cause these little bubbles to appear at the surface of this wet sand. And so he's showing this kind of like technical render test of a bubble popping on the surface of the sand in the background as he's trying to talk. But he's in f***ing Annecy. So everyone there is <laughs> doing the Annecy thing of like... Which is like the sort of tradition, like when the lights dim before things kind of like start. Everyone kind of makes the popping noises. Um, people even, kind of w- even after things start, Ben, it really annoys me. <laughs> people got a bit carried away with it this year. Yeah. It, you know, I should have gotten up on stage at one point. It's like, the <laughs> film is starting. And stop. Who threw that? You? Okay, you don't get to watch it. I would have been the most popular person there. Uh, <laughs> I felt like doing it so many times. It's so rude. I mean, it's 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 it was funny at this this time, uh, this particular gag when he was when they were, when they kept doing it. And I asked them, not in the interview, but I asked them before the interview. I went, "Did you know that that's a thing that Annecy does?" And they had no idea. <laughs> when they mentioned sort of like pop in sync with the bubble actually popping, like they eventually found a rhythm to do it. <laughs> they had no idea what was going on. Bless them. But. Uh, <laughs> But I'm glad you explained that to him. I did, yeah. I felt I had to. Like like you say, like the teacher, I'm very sorry for the way the class behaved. <laughs> Marcel, of course, just encourages it. If you go onto our Instagram, uh, there's a sort of moment where he basically gets everyone at one of the late night screenings to throw a paper plate at the same time. And it's just a tsunami of paper <laughs> cuts and eyes being poked out. And, you know, d- just insanity. It's great. So Piper... Really, uh, really good film, really interesting uh, new developments with what they're kind of doing with, you know, that sort of mix of photoreal and cartoony stuff. And so, yes, we also hear from him in this episode. We've got a double uh, double whammy for you. Yeah, we deliver. So we've got an interview here with director Alan Barilio and producer Mark Sondheimer. Tremendous. Let's hear from them. Is the production process, the pipeline to get uh, animated shorts made at Pixar the same as it is to get them made at Disney? Uh, you know, I'm so Pixar-centric, it's hard for me to run a comparison. I've been at Pixar for almost 20 years. I started when I was 22 in my life. So I'm one of those vets that uh, has to kind of look outside and, and uh, see, see the difference sometimes and ask the newbies, so how does it work over there? Um, but I would say the shorts program in itself is, is quite different because you have to be so scrappy and um, it's more of a passion project, as Mark always likes to say. And, um, resources and features are constantly shifting as professionals know and you're just rolling with that okay today we have sense people great let's start oh that animator you had you know every day started with who do we have on the crew today and who do um, all wonderful but you know even myself 
do I need to take a break and jump on a feature? So it inherently meant a structure that had to just be you know, filmmaking like guerrilla style of what are we going to get today? We need to get a shot. Um, that's, that's how I would, uh, I would answer that. Yeah, well, I th- are you also referring to kind of how it happens that we get to make a short? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I, I don't know how it works actually at Disney, so I couldn't speak to that. So Disney say that the, you get to pitch three projects, yep. and one of them gets picked. Um, John Lasset comes in, gives it a big tick, and yep. uh, away you go. Is it a similar process? Yes, it is. Um, go ahead. This one was different. Yeah. Uh, usually. Usually <laughs> that is the process, but this one was different because it started off as a test, really. Alan was working in the software development group, working on you know, tests for animators and tools um, to help uh, customize work, you know, the tool set for the artists. Um, and over the course of time, as he was working that on a test, Andrew Stanton and Lindsay um, encouraged him to develop a story around the test. And so that's really how it, Piper came to be. It was a little unusual, um, which is a kind of a beautiful thing about Pixar, I think, that they were open and accepted that as a as a, an approach to making a short film. Um, but it wasn't pitch three ideas to John, which is the norm. Yeah, but you know, it's uh, knowing John for so long, and also um, we do oddly. It's, I feel like Piper's um, in a tradition in a way, in the sense that it's about the technology and testing, and also trying some take some risk creatively. Um, and even uh, once we were greenlit. We wanted to keep that mantra of risk. When I when I started at the studio, Jerry's game was being made, and you know there was no promise of even getting out there. You know, it was this R and D project of can we do cloth for the next film? Can we do humans? Um, and I, I felt pretty compelled to carry that torch and take on all those risks. So Piper intentionally um, trying to take on as much as we could, you know, to to solve as much as we could because. Um, uh, I guess for me personally, I feel like the art form is so young, and I get frustrated if anyone says, "Oh, this is CG," or it's all these little boxes. Like a lot of art, the moment you make it, you're trying to say what it is. Um, and I always like to remind folks that film is young, animation is young, and the art form has to keep developing. Let's see where it goes. So it's always a hope that you can somehow contribute that, even in the slightest way, to keep keep pushing that forward. One of the things that struck me immediately about the film was it's um, it's very realistic uh, in certain respects, and but the animation uh, really shines through the the anthropomorphism, shall we say, within the animation shines through the character animation. Could you tell us a little bit about those decisions? Absolutely. You know, I I think it comes back to um, the fact that no matter what you're painting, you know, like a, a tool, a computer is just a brush, and they're all choices. And the moment you let the computer take on a, a choice, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, so it does nothing for you. In fact, it usually does the wrong thing. So even though we're pushing a certain amount of realism, it's uh, for the crew, a lot of my conversations were about classical art, where you have that really clear, simplified storytelling, um, actually quite complex. Um, actually, as, a, as almost a side note, whenever I talk to students, the first thing I do is, make a shop briefing, you know, when an animator gets briefed on a scene, and actually write down how much gets done in a classical piece. And you immediately go, I can't do that in a scene, I need more time. And I, I love that efficiency of painting, and, and to kind of get backtracked to your question. Um, 
Rockwell and choices that at a glance look realism, uh, like realism, you all of a sudden see how much, the more you learn about art, the more you see how manipulated it is. And everything is there for a purpose. That chair is to draw your eye to this and the lighting. So that's the approach we took on Piper. And, and it was a high bar for the crew um, to custom shape everything. And you know, there's, there's very little of Piper that um, is procedural or you know, sand grains are attached to characters, animators are moving feathers. Um, just because, you know, I don't know how to, it's handcrafted this stuff when you want that type of execution. So I wanted the texture and the macro photography and all the detail because I felt like it was a way of telling a story that was very intimate and uh, I love the richness of that world. Um, but I didn't want to ever make a choice that was to show off of technology or realism for realism's sake, if that makes sense. It, 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 does, it certainly comes across in, in the short Maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the actual production of the shot and how, if you're taking things piecemeal, bit by bit, uh, and grabbing yeah. people here and there, how do you juggle that? <laughs> Spinning a lot of plates. Um, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways, like the, the people that work at Pixar are such professionals at what they do. And um, the, the one of the benefits of working on a short is you get to... Uh, there's a small, smaller group of people, and you're able to. It's easier to kind of collaborate and you know try different ways to collaborate and stretch people to try new things. It's just a, it's a playground for innovating and trying things. And so, um, I think Alan is sort of a master at, at like fostering that and developing kind of encouraging anybody to speak up and encouraging communication between effects and animation and that conversation. Um, and then we just kind of provided the structure for that, like by the environment and, and um, I don't know, the whole studio is super supportive too. So it's, it's um, I don't know, it just kind of happens through, um, through a lot of hard work and a lot of like good people collaborating in an open, friendly way, basically. Yeah, I'll put a point on that just to add to what Mark said that, um, you know, we have a structure in CG layout to effects to but that's an inherent structure on where we are with the technology right now I, what it bothers me is if we grandfather that in and you don't give artists um, freedom to go where they need to go versus this old structure that might not be necessary anymore and one of the quick things I learned was I found it very frustrating to look at effects artists as not as animators if they know timing that well and design then why aren't they with animators why aren't we all together talking and why can't lighters contribute we have great acting notes from lighters from effects artists and vice versa so um, I think on the show as much as possible what I'd love to see going forward is breaking down those walls as much as possible as the computer especially becomes more visual uh, let's stop um, forcing this old system or or just be loose enough with the people you have um, to trust them because as an animation supervisor right now usually if you just get out of the way um, the work is 10 times better. So I felt like my job half the time was just to get the hell out of the way of the crew doing what they do best and stop meddling. Um, and that didn't come from, you know, I've learned that. I've learned that under understanding John Lasseter and Brad Bird. And there's great mentors um, there that taught me that and did it, did it consciously. Um, it's the easy thing to talk and give notes. It's the harder thing to trust and give the right type of feedback, um, which is always been something I was striving for uh, as much as possible in this film. It certainly worked. Thank you very much for yeah, speaking you. to Screenplay today. Thank it. You. Yeah. So thank you to Alan Barilio and Mark Suntimer. 
the uh, team behind Piper, which will be, I believe, showing with uh, screenings of Finding Dory. You believe correctly. And they usually put those on the DVDs as well, don't they, when they come out? Mm, yes. So, uh, yeah, one to look out for. I thought it was great. Like I said, there's a wonderful, there's a particular moment that just won everyone over. It's always nice to see. So we hope you've enjoyed what's been a very ranty, uh, cathartic, I think, for both of us episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. And uh, we brought it round to some fun new films that are coming out as well. So, you know, we... we 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 hopefully lighten the mood a bit toward the end there. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so thank you again to uh, the team behind Finding Dory and Piper. And those projects don't really need to be plugged, but I guess you can find Pixar online easily enough. And the film will be out in cinemas shortly, I believe, uh, by the end of July. Uh, UK cinema goers will be able to go see it. Check it out. See what you think. Let us know if you agree with our verdict and theories about the film or, or not. Uh, of course, yes, any uh, other issues that you may have or other things that you want to get in touch and chat about, we're always very eager to hear from you. Once again, get in touch via the contact page at squiggly.com, twitter.com slash squiggly, and uh, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. Follow us on Instagram. Oh, Instagram. Thank you. Yes, we're doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> Is that just uh, squiggly magazine or squiggly animation? Uh, it's, it's instagram.com slash squiggly animation. There you go. So there Lots of places to come find us. Tremendous. Anything to plug? Yeah, the uh, Manchester Animation Festival is still uh, accepting uh, entries for the 2016 edition. So if you have a short film, a uh, student film or a commissioned film, then you can enter it for free at our festival. And we are also doing uh, the uh, hopefully important Industry Excellence Awards. Uh, So if you're a storyboard artist, a writer or a character animator, and you would like to uh, submit your skills to the Industry Excellence Awards, you can do so for free, uh, and we'll be awarding the people in the industry, the important people, Ben. And you can find out more on how to enter at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. And if you've not had enough of Ben and I complaining about the uh, Brexit and the implications that it could have on UK animation production, I was invited to go on the Rubber Onion Animation Podcast uh, by Stephen Brooks and Rob Yulfo. Uh, so thanks for having us on there, guys. It was a great chat. Uh, I'm on episode 139, which is entitled Brexit Through the Gift Shop. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast if you've not heard it before, so get yourselves down there and uh, have a listen. You can hear it on rubberonion.com slash podcast. And in the spirit of moonlighting, I was interviewed by the fine folks at Tomb Boom during my time at Mifa during the Annecy Festival, and you can catch it on their YouTube channel, Toon Boom Animation, discussing, among other things, an exciting new project that I'll be elaborating on here very soon, I expect. In the meantime... Apropos of what we were discussing earlier, my latest film, Klementhrow, is continuing in its European travels. It's moved on to Germany, where it'll be screening in various cities as part of Interfilm's Shorts Attack program throughout July, starting this Saturday the 2nd in Leipzig. And between now and the next podcast, the program will be playing in Berlin, Hanover, Hamburg, Munchen, and the Fusion Festival in Mecklenburg. It'll probably take too long to list all the dates and venues and times, so if you're in Germany and you want to see if it's playing near you, visit shortsattack.com. Be sure to swing by Squiggly for our latest coverage, including Annecy event overviews, films and competition, film reviews, award winners, and plus the legendary Jan Svankmeyer answers your questions in an exclusive Squiggly Reader's Q&A, so lots to keep you occupied. Until next time, keep calm and carry on animating.